couple of announcements before uh, I had a fantastic time this afternoon. I thought it was marvelous. The, the good time, that, and I want to uh, thanks to Raleigh for his leadership here as well and his spirit. Uh, you know, it's uh, Raleigh's spirit that uh, controls a lot of this, and I really appreciate that. So we're patting each other on the back. You've got to do that. <laughs> Depends on how much I get in the check, you see. I asked for so much before I would come down. And uh, I just love the opportunity to uh, teach, talk, preach, argue, fight, whatever it is. Uh, and this afternoon was a good one, so thanks uh, for those who came out. Uh, we had a good one. Uh, I bequeath to George. George, have you read the book, uh, The Great Invitation by Errol Hulse? Relatively uh, new. Is that, uh... It's not the invitation system. It's relatively new. It's a couple of years old. The Great Invitation, and it's on uh, evangelism from a reform perspective. I like it. So yeah, so yeah, it's a reform Baptist. Yeah, right. That's okay. Some will get to heaven. Uh, to to Jay Fluck, I bequeath 362.0 miles. You wanted to know that. 362.0. And then some were also asking for copies of this uh, Congressional Subcommittee hearing report that I have. Uh, it has uh, excerpts of the, of the judge's order in our behalf. It also has uh, excerpts of the testimony of the organist, uh, the one that sued us as an excerpt of that. It also has a number of articles on... Uh, the gay issue in San Francisco, the disease issue. Now, this goes back, this is only 1980, so there's nothing about AIDS or anything of the sort in here. Uh, and then the uh, Southern California has a, maybe your tract on homosexuality? You had a great tract on homosexuality, and so we put that in there for the assemblyman in Sacramento. Now, as a matter of fact, you can get this in the congressional record. So if you, if you can get the congressional record, you can write and get the congressional record. Our whole thing is in there, plus the whole report and everybody else that spoke at that hearing, plus all the other information that was mailed in. So I, uh, if you want this, just this, then just write to me, and I'll send it to you, uh, a little prayer cloth, and that'll help out too, and just lay it on your arm and everything will be fine. No, I have tons of this left over, so uh, write it, and I'll send it down to you, okay? But if you want the whole package, write the congressional subcommittee, uh, write the uh, Congress. I don't know who specifically write, Library of Congress or whatever. And uh, they'll give you the whole shebang on that. And that was 1980. I have not heard since whether there is another, a second hearing on the gay rights issue on, on, on a federal level. Maybe we outnumbered them. Maybe they changed their mind. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. A little bit change of pace again. Last night was a real change of pace. This isn't so much of a change of pace. It's in conjunction with our discussions throughout the week and especially this morning. So on the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan as it's commonly called, Luke chapter 10. And I'll try to get you out for family ties. I think that's at 8 o'clock, isn't it? You don't want family ties? Eh? Yeah, 8.30. 8.30. Oh, okay. Well, I'll get you out by 8.30 then. 
No, 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 no. Some go, some do some other things too there, Bob. <laughs> Let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, again, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for Christ. And we thank you that he leads us in the paths of righteousness, that imputed righteousness, which is by faith alone, that practical righteousness, which is a work of the Spirit of God in our hearts. Now, Lord, conform us to the image of Christ. Help us to see the image of Christ in the story of the Samaritan. Bless us this evening, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's read it. Luke chapter 10. Uh, starting with verse 25. I'll read verses 25 through 37. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and made trial of him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus made answer and said, certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers who both stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a certain priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And in like manner, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. And he came to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on them oil and wine. And he set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, he took out two shillings and gave them to the host and said, Take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, I, when I come back again, I will repay thee. Which of these three, thinkest thou, proved neighbor unto him that fell among the robbers? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. And Jesus said unto him, Go and do thou likewise. An old familiar story. I think most of us know it. He's not called the Good Samaritan in the text, but it's a story of the Good Samaritan. They patterned after laws. California has a law, a good Samaritan law along, along those lines. To protect those Samaritans. They can get sued for helping out, you know. With a law, you can still, someone can at least file suit against you, so you better be careful. Well, it starts out with an, a lawyer or a scribe, as it says in some Bibles. I like lawyers. I like to talk to lawyers and teach lawyers. Finally got an opportunity. I got my foothold into Hastings College, which is a law school in San Francisco, and gave a Bible study there. I loved doing that. And the next week, one of the other law students gave a Bible study to refute what I had to say. <laughs> so that, that was quite interesting, you know. It was real simple stuff. I don't create any hard stuff. He asked the question, Teacher, verse 25, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's probably the most important question, again, that you can ever ask, that anybody could ever ask. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
Uh, on the way down here from San Francisco, you know, when you drive in the car with the kids, usually we leave at 4 o'clock in the morning. We're able to get down to L.A. by noon, so we beat the heat. Well, this time we thought we'd go a little bit later, and we didn't beat the heat and so forth. It wasn't that bad. But down along the ride, you hear the question, the proverbial question, incessantly asked, when are we going to get there? Not can I get a drink, or not can we stop now, or any of this other stuff. It's when are we going to get there? Well, I had preached this message a few weeks ago, so the kids didn't really ask that one until we got to the foot of this hill. I mean, at the, the exit. Then we start coming up here, and you go like this. Then the question, when are we, we going to get there? When are we going to get there? We're anxious, when are we going to get there? That's a good question, you know. You, you want to turn around them and slug them, you know. I don't know when we're going to get there. When are we going to get there? You know, that's a question we ought to ask, too, you know, if we can put it in the spiritual realm. The anticipation of the kids wanting to get there. You know, you've got to put up with the trip in the meantime. Would that we could get there a lot faster, fly down a helicopter, but when are we going to get there? That's a good question for us to ask as believers. When are we going to get home? And I'm not talking about San Francisco or L.A. or San Diego, but when are we going to get home? You know where home is for you and I? It's heaven. It's with the Lord Jesus. We ask that question, when are we going to get there? What must I do to get there, too? What can I do to get there? The related questions. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's not just a, an initial question with uh, just one answer or just an initial answer. You know, if someone came up to you and said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life, what would you say? Well, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. That's the answer to the question. The question never comes up again. You never ask that again. It's gone. This is the end of it. But I think that's a question that you can constantly, the Christians can constantly ask that question to themselves. Not because they're trying to find an answer, but to remind us, what shall we do to inherit eternal life? We've got to be reminded all the time, what shall we do? And Jesus gives the answer. Now the question was, what is there that I can do now to inherit everlasting life. What is it in this state, in this condition that I'm living in, that will last for all eternity? What decision or what act or deed can I do which will really transform me for the rest of eternity? See, that's the, that, that's the importance of the question. And there's a lot of things we can do in, in, in making lots of money or changing jobs or all this other. But what is there now that I can do that can, that can mean the difference between eternity with Christ and eternity without Christ? What can I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus do? Important question, what does Jesus do? Jesus takes him right back to the Word of God. Verse 26, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he says, You shall love the Lord your, your God with all your heart, soul, might, and mind. Now the text says, or at least it implies, that this scribe, similar to the rich young ruler, asked the same question, he really wasn't interested in searching. He's not necessarily interested in searching because he wanted to justify himself. So he's seeking to justify himself. Maybe he made this purely an intellectual, an academic question. What do you say is eternal life? 
Now, that's the kind of a question you'd want to ask if you run across somebody who's got a new theory about uh, the world, uh, a new theory about what heaven's about. Uh, you'd ask the question, well, what do you say? How do you get to heaven? That's, to me, uh, more of what the, this fellow's asking, this lawyer's asking. He wants to play with the idea. As far as he's concerned, he's got it pretty much settled in his own mind. He's simply asking that intellectual question now. It's easy to do that, to be uninvolved. But he wants to ask that question. He's intrigued about Jesus. Jesus is someone to be intrigued about. A lot of people are following Jesus. Now, what's your opinion about eternal life? Now, the scribe or this particular lawyer, as far as he's concerned, it may be a matter of intellection. That is, it may be a matter of mental gymnastics to discuss this whole issue. This afternoon, we had a lot of time discussing all kinds of issues. Uh, it was very interesting. Jesus doesn't take it as an intellectual exercise. Jesus doesn't take it as an exercise and just simply uh, mental constructs and things that go in the mind at all. Jesus takes that question extremely seriously. Whether the scribe takes it seriously or not, Jesus takes this, this extremely seriously because Jesus is not going to give him a superficial answer. Jesus is not going to play with his head. Whether that fellow is going to play with Jesus' mind, Jesus isn't going to play with his mind. He's going to give him the real rock-bottom answer to that. What do you say? How do you read it? And the fellow gave the right answer. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, might, and mind. It's real clear. He takes them back to Scripture. In other words, Jesus doesn't have another theory. Jesus doesn't have another view, as a matter of fact. You know, it's fun to listen to the various views and, and philosophies that go on in life. The Apostle Paul was preaching at a place called Mars Hill. Well, they love to talk about what's the latest theory, the latest concoction, the latest view. And people are really enamored. You perhaps run into them that are really enamored with new views, new ideas. And they'll swallow that new idea. Est. That's great. Kind of like that one. And then S died. Where's S now? Where's Warner? Anybody know where he is? I don't know. And then after S, what else comes? What's the next thing after S that you go into? Hot tubs, okay? You go into hot tubs. We'll try that one for a while. Hey, we really learn a lot. And there's people that just make a hobby out of finding the latest thing. Jesus doesn't have the latest thing. He's not giving the latest theory. He takes them back to an old book. There it is. The law. It's written. You shall love the Lord your God. And it's real clear to this fellow. It's real clear. The Word of God, the written Word of God, Jesus hasn't got another theory. He's not another fellow with another theory, another, another experience to give you. He takes you right back to the Word of God. You shall love the Lord your God. That was an old, old statement given about 1,500 years earlier. Give or take a few hundred years. An old statement. Nothing new about that. What must I do to have eternal life? Well, what does the written Word of God have to say? It's clear. Again, there are a lot of people, when they look at the Bible, and they'll talk to a Presbyterian, and the Presbyterian gives their answer, and then they'll turn to somebody else and they'll give an answer and then somebody else gives their answer and then after a while, what happens? Well, there's so many different theories about the Bible, so many different theories about the law of God or what it is. You see, that, that proves that the Bible is unclear. That proves that the Bible isn't sufficient enough. That proves that we need either an angel from heaven coming down with golden tablets or something, you know, a flash in the sky, or writing it across the sky, however it is. We need something clearer than the Word of God. 
And Jesus' point is, no, there's nothing clearer than what's already written there. And it tells you all you have to know. No new theories anymore. It's simply this, Ben. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, might, and mind. And uh, your neighbor is yourself. Ah, verse 28. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered correctly. Do that and you will live. Now comes the hard part. Ready? Two theories on this. One theory says that Jesus basically said, okay, if that's what your answer is, you go try and do it. Matter of fact, you find out that you can't do it, and therefore you'll come to me. In other words, Jesus was kind of going along with this fellow. It's similar to the rich young ruler. A rich young ruler says, well, keep the commandments. And the rich young ruler says, yeah, I've kept the commandments. And Jesus says, okay, you think, you, come, you think you've kept the commandments? Let's go through the commandments and blah, 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 goes through them. Is Jesus simply presenting a hypothetical there? You think that's all there is to it? Then go try it. And in fact, what's supposed to happen is the guy says, well, I guess you're right. That's not the way to do it. Okay, then turn to me and be saved. That's one way to look at the text. I don't think that's what the text says. I don't think that's the right way to look at the text. I don't think Jesus is playing any tricks on this man. I don't think Jesus is going along with the fella either. I don't think Jesus is simply going along with the fella to tell him, okay, you think you, if that's the way to do it? Fine. Go ahead and try it. You find out it won't work. I don't think Jesus is saying that at all. I think Jesus is straightforward telling them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, might, mind, and so forth. And your neighbor is yourself. That's straightforward. He said to the rich young ruler, simply the, uh, the statement, keep the law. Keep the commandments. Jesus isn't playing around with that. Jesus isn't saying to this fellow, either the rich young ruler or to the scribe here, go try it out and you find out it won't work in keeping the commandments. No, Jesus is not telling him to keep the commandments by himself on his own strength and find out that he's weak and won't be able to do it. Jesus is telling him to keep the commandments, but Jesus is telling him to keep the commandments in their true sense too, in the fullest sense of the word. You shall love the Lord your God. Now you, may, you, may find, you may not find that in a commentary, but Jesus, again, is not presenting a hypothetical. What does it take to get to heaven? Obedience to God's commandments. That's what it takes. And when Jesus says obedience to his commandments, he's not saying obedience in the flesh or obedience by yourself. Of course not. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't give answers like that. Jesus gives the, the true answer. You must obey in faith. You must obey by grace. You must obey in me. The world loves to hear obey, period. See, that's the world's answer. The world will love to hear that. The rich young ruler walked away to that answer because he had lots of riches because Jesus wasn't simply telling him do the best you can Jesus wasn't playing with his mind Jesus was saying that you have to obey but there's a context for that expression obedience it must be in Christ in me by faith again verse 29 but he desiring to justify himself said unto Jesus who is my neighbor now there's a real clever tactic of a, of a lawyer Lawyers have their clever tactics. That's why I like lawyers. They're like preachers. Very clever. You can't corner a preacher, a lawyer. 
You can't, a preacher, a lawyer, uh, they can can get themselves out of all kinds of trouble. You don't know what they say necessarily at all times, but they can get themselves out of trouble. And here he wants to uh, demonstrate that the Word of God is clear, but the Word of God is kind of narrow-minded about this whole thing. And so he says, who is my neighbor? He doesn't ask who God is because that's real clear. Everybody knows who God is. There's no problem with who God is. That's easy question. Everybody knows they're supposed to love God, whoever he is, but everybody's supposed to love God. The real difficult question is, who is my neighbor? Turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 5. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Here's the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, uh, look at verse 43. Verse 43, chapter 5, thank you very much. You have heard, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies and pray for them that persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes the sun to rise in the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Okay? Well, let me give you what I think Jesus means by that. All the way through this uh, Sermon on the Mount, starting with verse 21, as a matter of fact, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is arguing with the false kind of righteousness. And this false righteousness, as a matter of fact, uses the same Bible, uses the same text, but he distorts it. You've heard that it was said, verse 21, Thou shalt not kill, but I say unto you, whosoever, so forth and so on. He goes on to explain it. But he appeals to the Word of God and how, in fact, that false righteousness distorted it. The next verse of uh, verse 27 You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you... See, the but there doesn't mean he is chucking the other verse. He's not saying, okay, now you can commit adultery. He's not saying that at all, obviously not. He's appealing to the law, the word of God, and how it was distorted. Here are two groups, two kinds of righteousness, and they make the same appeal to the same book, but one has distorted that word. Verse 33 Again, you have heard that it was said of them of old time, you shall forswear thyself, but shall perform unto the Lord your oaths. You see, that's what the Word of God said. He's talking about the Word of God, but there have been those that would distort that Word of God. He's trying to correct their distortion. He's not throwing out this expression, but I say to you, swear not at all. You see, now the but there doesn't eliminate the previous verse. He's not throwing out the previous verse. He's trying to deal with that righteousness that has perverted the same book, as a matter of fact. Uh, Verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, resist not. Now, Now, that one, a lot of people say, well, you see, Jesus was throwing out eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. No longer is it applicable. No, Jesus isn't throwing out eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He's throwing out the distortion of that text. People can take that same Bible and distort that righteousness, that free righteousness, which is by grace, through faith. They can distort it. They can show you the same Bible verse. They can know all those Bible verses and have it completely wrong, out of context, because they're not talking about the righteousness, which is by faith alone. I'll get to verse 43. I'm building a case here. 
Verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Now, to be consistent with all those other things, Jesus wasn't throwing out that expression, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The Old Testament talked about hating. Hating enemies. Hating the enemies of God. Psalmist talks about hating the enemies. Psalm 139 talks about I hate them with a perfect hatred. See, he wasn't throwing out the text. I don't believe that he was, he was quoting some rabbinic source, some tradition, and then throwing out the tradition. No, I don't think that's at all. He's throwing out the distortion that people or the excuses people made with God's Word. It's true. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies. You know, David did talk about hating the enemies. But when David said that in Psalm 139, I hate them with a perfect hatred. When David said that, he said that by the Spirit. He wasn't talking about personal animosity when he said that hatred. That hatred involved is not talking about personal vendetta that David had against somebody. That hatred is a righteous kind of hatred. A hatred against sin, too. It's interesting how the psalmist phrased it. I hate them with a perfect hatred. Not talking about personal vengeance involved with that. Now, how do you do that one? How do you hate somebody righteously? I don't know. Boy, you can see what you can do with a text like that. Now it becomes an excuse. Wow, and to love my neighbor, great, but I can hate my enemies. David hated his enemies. You see how they can take that text. Jesus isn't chucking Psalm 139. He doesn't take the imprecatory Psalms. You know what they are? They, you know what the imprecatory Psalms are? They're, tell your, ask your father. He'll tell you tonight. But. <laughs> Those are the Psalms, which are songs, about cursing somebody. May they be destroyed. May God's enemies be destroyed. And there are some Christians that want to throw out the imprecatory psalms and say, they're not for us today. No, they're not for us today. I think that's because they misunderstand those curses in the Bible. When we sing those songs, we're not used to singing those curses. We're singing it out of, of, out of the Psalter that we use. And it's really interesting to sing, a, sing Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. And the song goes, I won't sing it for you, don't worry. <laughs> The song sing, is about may his mother be childish and may the, uh, may the, uh, the lender take all his money and may he have no children and may his mother die and all this kind of... Wow, that's kind of cruel stuff. But nowadays, you don't talk that way and it doesn't sound very Christian. Well, it doesn't sound very Christian if you think of it as just personal vengeance. Is that all that it comes across as personal vendetta? That's not it at all. It's talking about the righteous justice of God against sinners. It could be, it's us too, you know. That could be our condition and state. And so when it talks about love your, love your neighbor but hate your enemy, people can distort that thing and say, hatred, oh boy, now that gives me a foothold in there. Now I can have a personal vendetta. I can hold a grudge. The Bible says that I don't have to love everybody. Oh, I phrase it this way. It says I have to love everybody, but I don't have to like everybody. How about that one, okay? Somewhere to find a chink in there, somewhere to find an excuse that I don't have to obey God's commandments in this area over here. 
I can have a legitimate, irrational, if you will, animosity. You know what animosity is? Don't like them. Just don't like them. Do you like everybody? No. True confessions over here. That's right. But you know what? There's always going to be someone that's not going to like you. There's always going to be someone that doesn't like you. And it's going to be like you can't do anything to please them, right? You run across people like that, too. I run across people like that, too. You can't help them out enough. You can't write letters. You can't say thank you and please enough. You can't do anything. There just seems to be a block. It's called a personality conflict. And some people just want to rest with a supposedly psychological personality conflict. We just don't get along. It's just too bad. No such animal in Scripture. You ought to love everyone. And don't make an excuse out of the text of God about David hating his enemies, so I'll hate this fellow too. Love your enemies. David meant that too. No personal vendetta. Get back to uh, Luke chapter 10. Who is your neighbor? Boy, would that we could just narrow down that neighbor is. Who is your neighbor, Larry? The guy that can take care of you. The guy that treats you. Maybe your boss who gives you a bonus. That's who your neighbor is. Now, again, what's interesting, the question is a simple question. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story. Now, don't give me a story. Just give me an answer, straightforward answer. But Jesus just, just doesn't play those games. You know, he gives you a story. And this is the answer to that. There was a fellow that was beaten up on this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. We don't know who he is. don't know why he was beaten up, but, but he was beaten up by these robbers, apparently, and left half dead. And along comes on the road a priest. If anybody's going to stop and look, it's going to be the priest. Lo and behold, right? You'd think a priest would do that. If anybody's going to do it. Lo and behold, the priest walks on the other side of the road. Incredible. Priests don't do that. Priests are dedicated to God, you see. Dedicated to helping people. That's what priests are supposed to do. My priest will do it all. You know, they may come to your door Saturday morning, knocking on the door, asking you to join their organization. You say, look, my pastor knows everything. Why don't you go to him? Now, you can do that with me. You can tell them. Send them up to San Francisco. There's a guy that would love to talk to you. My priest can handle all that stuff. The priest doesn't. Now, it's really interesting. Jesus is playing, uh, he's not playing, but he's, he's using a subtlety in here. Because this is what the prophets talked about. The prophets talked about the priests as well. In Ezekiel um, chapter 34, he talked about the priests and how the priests of Israel, the shepherds of Israel, failed to bind up the wounded. They failed to fulfill their responsibilities. They failed to take care of the poor. It's almost like Jesus is alluding to the priesthood. There is kind of a subtle attack on the priests. Well, give the guy a break. Maybe he's, maybe he's got something else to do. I mean, maybe he's on a trip. Maybe there's more important things to do. That's not his job, right? That's not his job. He's a priest. He's not an ambulance. Somebody asked me, one of my members asked a question when I got done preaching. And the question was, are we supposed to do this all the time? We'll never get home. We'll never get anywhere if we have to stop everywhere. Everybody's got to stop everywhere to help everybody. And, of course... The response to that is, no, you don't have to stop for everybody, everything. Oh, phew. And then we just forget everything all over again. It just goes back to that again. Here's the priest. He's got his own agenda. He walks on. Along comes the Levite. If anybody's going to stop, it should be the Levite. He's not as busy as the priest. Lo and behold, he looks. 
The priest kind of eyes. The Levite looks, walks on the other side of the road. Don't want to get involved. Then along comes this other fellow, verse 33. A certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, was moved with compassion. Now that speaks a whole sermon in itself. That's powerful. When he saw him, he wasn't preached at. He wasn't forced into it. His wife didn't say, dear, somebody hurt over there. Go over there. There was nobody that persuaded any particular arguments. The argument was right there. The fellow needs help. Go to that fellow. He needs help. He's moved with compassion by the sight of this injured fellow. Now, we don't know who the injured fellow is. We assume he's a Jewish fellow that's injured. It doesn't say that. But I think it may be an implication. With this fellow, we know who the Samaritan is. Lo and behold, it's the Samaritan that comes. Oi, they, you don't have a Samaritan in this. Would that Jesus pick somebody else, Manasseh, a tribe, another tribe, but he picked a Samaritan. It's incredible. Why does Jesus pick on a Samaritan as the hero? It's like he's trying to drive a knife in and then wiggle it around, too. It's the Samaritan that becomes the hero of the story. Now, you know about Samaritans. You know about Samaritans? What's your first name? Paul. Paul. You know about Samaritans? Yeah. People didn't like Samaritans. Samaritans, they weren't Jewish, and they weren't quite Gentile, and they weren't quite Babylonian, and they weren't quite this, and they weren't quite that. They were kind of a mixture of races. Know what I mean? Nobody, nobody would accept him in this particular race and nobody would accept him in that particular race. He just was hands off, this kind of a thing, you know. And the Jews had a tremendous prejudice against the Samaritans. You see, the Samaritans wouldn't go to heaven. A good Samaritan was a dead Samaritan. That's why. And they had this tremendous prejudice against the Samaritans. As a matter of fact, Jesus is called the Samaritan, the greatest insult. In John chapter 8, verse 48, they say, not only is, is he... Uh, a false prophet, not only accusing Jesus of being a false prophet, but he's a Samaritan on top of that and has a demon. Now, whether he said a Samaritan always has a demon or whether this Samaritan had a demon, that's what the Jews thought of Jesus. He's a Samaritan. That's what the Jews thought of the Samaritans. You can't trust a Samaritan. You don't know what they're going to do. They're going to steal your kids. They're going to run off in the dark or something like that. Don't go into business with a Samaritan. Can't trust them. Sign a contract and they'll lie the next day. Can't stand Samaritan. But the hero of the story is a Samaritan. As he journeyed, verse 33, but a certain Samaritan as he journeyed came where he was and when he saw him was moved and he came to him and bound up, bound up his wounds pouring oil and wine. He set him on his own beast and took him to an inn. You can imagine the fellow that was beaten up. No, don't touch me. No, I don't want a Samaritan touching me. And he's bleeding, you know. And he's about ready to die. He's half dead. I don't care who you are. I will not be saved by a Samaritan. Would you say that? Now, we live uh, in a corner. Our house is on the corner. 20th Avenue and Lawton Street. It's an interesting corner because Lawton Street takes a nosedive at the end of the intersection. So you're going along Lawton Street and then like that. So you can't see over the crest of the hill. So if two cars are coming, you can't see each other, except if you're way out here, but then you have a blind spot right here. And a lot of cars like to turn. And we have lots of accidents, and there's a couple of us in the neighborhood that just dash out. 
And we've had all kinds of accidents, head-on collisions, boom, like that. People hit and run, smashing into the fire hydrant right beside the house, smashing into the, the truck beside the house, all kinds of things. Boy, this is a dangerous neighborhood to live in. I don't know whether I like my kids playing on the corner. The, the fire hydrant right beside our house was taken. When I came home, there was the typical, the geyser. Just like you see in the movies, the geyser going up, 12 feet. My kids had been playing there, but they moved out of the way. It was a truck that knocked it off and went further down to Lawton Street. Dangerous territory. The Samaritan could have thought the same thing. Boy, this guy was beaten up. If I stop, I could get beaten up too. Maybe the priest thought that. Maybe the Levite thought that. They have families too. They have responsibilities. That's right. Maybe they saw the Samaritan coming in the background. He'll take care of him. Don't we do that too? Driving by, I saw, was driving by and I saw uh, down one of the streets and there was a fellow on the, on the ground. Well, I was too busy. The next guy, I'll get him. Half an hour later, I came by and uh, the police had just got there. Half hour, the police had just got there. No one had helped him. The Samaritan could have had an excuse. I got a family. I've got to think of those other things. You've got to be realistic about this. But the Samaritan simply helped out. He put his life in jeopardy. He saw this injustice and he put his life in jeopardy. He could lose it all. Watch out now. If you extend yourself too much, if you help the poor at your door, they're going to come to your door. Now, we, uh, our, our church is right off 19th Avenue. 19th Avenue is Route 1. And we get people that stop at the door. Please, could you help me out? I need a quarter. I have, my father-in-law is, uh, uh, is sick way over in uh, uh, Melpitas, and I need a bus ride. You know they don't need a bus ride, and they don't have a father in Melpitas that's sick or anything of the sort. And you know that if you give them a quarter or anything, they'll be back with friends. And they are. You don't always give them something. That's true. No excuses about the Samaritan. He helps the fellow. He puts his life in danger. Not only does he put his life in danger, he spends his own goods. There's his wine and oil. Maybe he had that for the trip. Maybe he had just dosed out enough. Maybe he had just partitioned out enough between his trip from Jerusalem to wherever he was going. Just enough. He's going to use that. Uh, maybe he had a business, business trip to go on. Maybe, maybe he's coming home from a business trip. He wants to go home, but he takes time out to do all those things. He puts the guy on the, the mule that he has and takes him to the end. He spends time. How much time do I have? He's spending all this time at it. He spends his money on this. He doesn't know this guy from a hole in the ground. Why should he care? Spends some money on the fellow. Now the punchline that Jesus gives. Verse 36. Which of these three thinkest thou proved neighbor unto him that fell among the robbers? Now Jesus does a good, a, a, another interesting thing. Instead of asking the question, who is the neighbor? Well, that's the fellow that was beaten up. So we're supposed to help those that are beaten up. I mean, that's my, that was my response. The neighbor is the fellow that's all beaten up. No, Jesus is no. The neighbor is the one, the one who proved himself the neighbor. And the Levites are neighbors. Everybody knows that. We love those neighbors. It's readily understood that priests and Levites are neighbors. They don't have to do anything and we'll accept them. They don't have to be nice and clean and sweet. And you, they're, they're supposed to be neighbors anyway. It's this Samaritan who just can't do anything right. He just can't do anything right. He proves to be the neighbor. 
verse 37. And he said, and this is the answer of the, rich, uh, of the, uh, the scribe, the lawyer. Verse 37. He that showed him mercy. Notice he didn't say, the Samaritan. You gag on that one. The Samaritan. You don't want to say the Samaritan. The Samaritan's the one that's prejudiced there. Samaritan's the prejudiced one. No, he says, the one that showed him the mercy. And Jesus said unto him, go and do thou likewise. Okay. This is the answer to what must I do to have eternal life? Go and follow the Samaritan. Wow, that's incredible. Go and follow the Samaritan? Now, wait a minute. The story isn't about the Samaritan. The story isn't about how to be a nice person and help those along the way. Again, if you reduce this story to, about, to simply helping people in need along the way, you've missed the point of all this. Jesus is teaching us about grace. Jesus is not teaching us about doing good deeds, though doing good deeds we ought to do. That Samaritan didn't just do good deeds. That Samaritan did those deeds by grace. After all, it's a Samaritan that showed that love. If a Samaritan can do it, if God can love a Samaritan, if God can change the heart of a wicked Samaritan, what can he do to anybody else, you see? It's the story of grace. That's what it's about. How God changed their lives. And finally, again, it's still not the story of the Samaritan whose life was changed and who evidences this godliness by the way he acts. It's still the story of Christ because it's Christ that is the Samaritan. It's Christ the one who came to his own but his own refused him not. It's Christ the one who was accused of being the Samaritan. It's Christ that's the one who people don't like, who hate, can't stand. Tremendous prejudice against Christ. You ask people, why don't you like Christ? Have you ever stopped and asked somebody? Again, I like Jewish evangelism. When I talk to a Jewish individual, I, I like to ask the question, you know, what is it about Jesus that you don't like? Well, go through a, and you actually have you go through the whole dialogue of the New Testament. What is it about Jesus that people don't like? Well, it really boils down to they just have a blind prejudice against Christ. What is it about the Ten Commandments that you don't like? What is it about God's Word that you don't like? And the answer is there really isn't anything. I was talking to a fellow, a place where I worked when I was in seminary. He didn't believe in God, and I said to him, "Okay, what would it take?" What could God do to demonstrate that He truly exists and you must believe in Him? He thought for a while. Mm. Now, let me give you some suggestions. How about if He causes a worldwide flood? Would that do it? Nah, that won't do it. How about if He has these uh, miraculous uh, meteorological effects on the earth with frogs and lice and Ten of them is a matter. Would that do it? Would that convince you? No, he said that wouldn't do it. This is, a, this is a, a, the actual dialogue I went through. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take him through the miracles of the Bible. You see. So we're going through. What about that being swallowed by this huge... No, that wouldn't do it. What if he actually came down and said, I'm God, performed miracles, they killed him, and he's being to catch, get the point. What could God do? So we went through the miracles. And you know what his answer was at the end of all that? I guess there isn't anything he could do. There isn't anything God could do. It's right. It's just a blind prejudice against God's will, God's word, against the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And that's, that's what sin is. You see, Dave? That's what sin is. That's what sin is in our life. It boils down to, why don't you obey God's Word? It's clear and it's plain. And we see what Solomon did. He was a wise man. He got involved with all these ladies and he gets into trouble. How stupid, Solomon, can you be? And that's just, that's the big laugh on us, too. How stupid can we be? How stupid can we be? Because it takes grace. It's by grace to take away that blindness before our eyes. The question is, what must I do? What is, what is it that I can do? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you can do. Oh, good. Nobody sees that. If we left it there, and that's all that we said, if that's all that was there, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. If that's all that was meant, that's easy to do. I'll go home and go back to bed again. But when the Apostle Paul said that, when Jesus said those words, believe in the Lord Jesus, he meant to do something. Follow me. Sell all. A variety of his expressions that he uses. But it's still faith, you see. You've got to put that faith to practice. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you go and you follow Him. That's what that boils down to. And he's talking to believers when he says that. That's why we have to be constantly reminded what must I do to, ha- to inherit eternal life? Whatever I do, it demonstrates itself in deeds of compassion through faith in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us of our compassionlessness. Lord, forgive us of our sins. Forgive us, Lord, of thinking of our neighbor as simply the nice fellow, but there's the awful fellow as well. There's this other character that we have some prejudice against. Lord, deliver us from our prejudices. Deliver us from our sins. And make us to learn the answer to the question, what must we do? We've got to follow the Samaritan. We've got to follow the Lord Jesus Christ who laid down His life for us. And the next time we get angry and the next time we fight with someone else, bring to our mind and bring to our attention Jesus died for us. The next time we complain about one another, Jesus died for us. The next time we find it too hard to obey God's will, remind us Jesus died for us and save us. For Jesus' sake, amen.